the 19, question and answer 52. Where we confess the following, what comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. After the sermon, we will respond by singing together from hymn 67, stanzas 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and to you boys and girls who are members of God's covenant and congregation, over the last couple of weeks we have considered what we confess about Christ's ascension into heaven, and that he sits at God's right hand. We learn and confess also that he is our eternal high priest, who continually intercedes on behalf of his people. He is the one who makes it possible for us to approach God's throne in prayer. We also confess that he rules from heaven for the sake of his church. He is the king of heaven and earth. And he has all authority and power in heaven and on earth. At the same time, we learn that not everyone submits to Christ. There are still many rebels on this earth. And it's also true that we who believe in Christ and submit to his rule are weak people. There's a lot of pressure on us to join the rebels. And that pressure comes from our enemies, the world, and the temptations of the devil, but also our own sinful nature. And so the result is then that we live in a world that is full of sorrow and persecution, to use the language of question answer 52. And it's in the midst of this life of sorrow that we confess and believe that the Lord Jesus is going to return on the clouds of heaven to judge the living and the dead. That is the theme for the sermon as well. And we'll consider three things. We'll ask how he will return, when he will return, and then we'll ask the question, are you ready? So we read from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, and it seems that the members of the church there had some concerns about the manner of Christ's return and what would happen on that day. They certainly believed that he was coming again, and they were Christians who had fully embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, Paul gives, them, gives thanks for the faith and the steadfastness of their hope, including the reality of their hope in the return of Christ. Well, the congregation at Thessalonica had experienced the death of some of their members, and it seems they were concerned that these members were going to miss out on something when Christ returned. And this plunged them into hopeless grief for these departed members. And this is what Paul is addressing in the end of chapter 4. They were a family of believers, and they wanted the entire family to be there when their Savior returned on the clouds of heaven. But the Apostle assures them that all believers will participate in Christ's return. They will all see him 
and be there. On the day that Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise first, he writes, and then those who are left alive at Christ's return will meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And therefore, right, Paul writes, comfort one another with these words. And that also fits with what Christ himself said while he was on earth. In John chapter 17, when he was praying to the Father, just before he went to the cross, he prayed, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And that's what is going to happen when Christ returns. God will come to dwell with his people. And then all our sorrows and persecution will come to an end. Then God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more tears, no more pain. All these things will be no more. Because God is making everything new. He's making all things new. Lord's Day 19 makes that very clear with the words, He will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. And so Paul could write to the Thessalonians that, that they could be assured that all of God's children, the entire church family, would experience and witness this great event. And we could be assured of the same thing, congregation. Not one of God's children is going to miss out on that day. They will join their Savior. We will all join Him together. And what is it that we are going to witness on that day? Well, Scripture tells us Christ will come with the clouds, and every eye shall see him. He will come not as the man of sorrows, but as the victor, the conqueror, to claim his own. In place of a crown of thorns, he will wear a crown of glory. And on his robe and on his thigh, a name will be written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Bible says that Christ's return is not going to be done in secret. It's not going to be done quietly. The scriptures emphatically declare that everyone will see and hear the Lord when he returns. He will return with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. According to Jesus' own words in Matthew 24, he said, I will send out my angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. There is no secrecy here. Christ's coming is not going to be some kind of inward, spiritual, invisible experience, but it is going to be a real meeting with the Lord Jesus himself. He will come as he went, as the angels told the disciples when they witnessed Jesus' ascension into heaven. And Jesus left no doubt whatsoever about the visibility of his return. He says, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24 again. And scripture also teaches that Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. That's from the 
second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 1. Right? And the Apostle Peter puts it this way, The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are on it will be exposed. And the book of Revelation, chapter 20, There the Holy Spirit reveals to us that Christ will return with fire that comes down from heaven that will devour the enemies of God, the armies of Satan, and the devil will be thrown into the lake of sulfur. So the picture that scripture gives is, is one of fiery judgment on God's enemies. Christ is going to return to this sin-filled world with his holy wrath and destroy everything on this earth. And the result will be that Satan and all who oppose the Lord Jesus Christ will be thrown forever into eternal fire. We confess he will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation. So let's make no mistake about it. This is going to be a terrible day of judgment for all who do not acknowledge Christ as Lord and Savior. Think of what we confess in the Belgian Confession, Article 37. The secrets and hypocrisy of men will then be publicly uncovered in the sight of all. Thus, for good reason, the thought of this judgment is horrible and dreadful to the wicked and evildoers. The wicked will be convicted by the testimony of their own consciences and will become immortal, but only to be tormented in the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. On that day they will call upon the mountains to fall on them and the hills to cover them. And they will try to hide themselves from the face of the one who is coming to judge the living and the dead, but they will not escape. For the great day of his wrath is coming, and who can stand before it? Revelation 6.15 Indeed, congregation, who can stand before the wrath of God? Only those whom the Father has given to the Son. Only those whom the Father has given to the Son to be with him in glory where he is. And so the coming of the Son of Man means the end of all the rebels in the kingdom of God and for everyone who opposes the Lamb. But while the thought, and I'm quoting again from Article 37 of the Belgian Confession, while the thought of this judgment is horrible and dreadful to the wicked and evildoers, it is a source of great joy and comfort to the righteous and elect. For then their full redemption will be completed and they will receive the fruits of their labor and of the trouble they have suffered. Their innocence will be known to all, and they will see the terrible vengeance God will bring upon the wicked who persecuted and oppressed them and tormented them in this world. The faithful and elect will be crowned with glory and honor. The Son of God will acknowledge their names before God his Father. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and their cause which at present, condemned as heretical and evil by many judges and civil authorities, will be recognized as the cause of the Son of God. And as a gracious reward, the Lord will grant them to possess such glory, such as the heart of man has never conceived. And therefore we look forward to that great day with great longing to enjoy the full, to the full the promises of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul writes twice 
in the passage that we read from Thessalonians, that we should comfort and encourage one another with these words. That brings us to the next point, when will Christ return? That's a question that the early church faced as well. And the truth of Christ's return has been mocked by unbelievers ever since Christ ascended into heaven. That's because, humanly speaking, it's taking a long time. It's been 2,000 years already. And in the days of the Apostle Peter, people were openly mocking this already. The church's expectation of Christ's return. Where is the promise of His coming, they were saying? Where is Christ? He said He was going to come back, but we don't see any evidence. Right? They had their answer. They, they said, nothing's ever changed. It's always been this way since the beginning of creation. Since the beginning of the world. Things are just continuing as they are. But how terribly wrong they are. That's not how it is. Just think of the great flood that happened during the days of Noah. And in 2 Peter 3, we're told that God judges time differently than we do. What we count as a thousand years, the Lord is just as one day to the Lord. Because God is eternal. Time, time doesn't mean to Him what it means to us. And so the Apostle warns us, we should not think that God is being slow in keeping His promise. Nor that He is perhaps incapable of keeping His promise. He's not deliberately postponing His return just, just to make people keep on waiting. In fact, the Apostle Peter explains that it's just the opposite. It's quite the opposite is happening. The Lord is being patient with us. He is not slow as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. So Peter is saying the Lord is not slow. He said, but we are. The Lord is patient with people who still need to repent. And you could say the Lord Jesus is patient on our account as well, right? The Lord has postponed his return until you and I have an opportunity to hear the gospel and respond to it. And he's still waiting. He's waiting for others also so that they can join the family of God. And that's why Peter writes, we should count the patience of the Lord as our salvation. And what if the Lord was not so patient? Congregation. This world would have been destroyed long ago. If not for the patience of the Lord, there would be no salvation for us. Or for anyone. And there would be no more time for mission work, no more time for evangelism. If not for the patience of the Lord, there would be no time for our children to grow up in the faith of God. Well, in the days of Peter, many people mocked the idea that Christ is coming back. And that's no different today. How can it be true? There's no indication that he's coming back. It's taking forever. But the Apostle turns that mockery back on itself. While people are impatient, it is the Lord who is being very patient. But at the same time, he's not going to wait any longer than necessary. I am coming soon, Christ told John in Revelation 22. And he told his disciples that the last days would be shortened. If the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So the Lord is coming soon. He's not going to wait any longer than necessary. 
And if Paul tells the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, the implication is that we need to be ready. And that's a truth that has deep implications for all of us. Are you ready? It means that we may not let the Lord wait for us. Living in expectation of Christ's return means we must live as Christ expects us to. In other words, this is a call to repent and believe. We may not postpone until tomorrow what we're supposed to do today. So the question is, are you ready? Are you prepared for the day of the Lord's return? Are you living with His return in mind? Paul writes, the day of the Lord can come suddenly, unexpectedly. But he adds, you are not in the darkness for that day to surprise you. Like it would a thief. So that day shouldn't catch us unprepared. You are not children of the darkness. You are children of the light. So you should be watchful. We must be sober and watchful, he says. And people who are drunk, like Paul, they're, they're not able to be watchful. They will never be ready if a thief breaks into the house. But someone who is sober is watchful and will be ready. And Paul uses this metaphor to urge his readers to be prepared. How then ought we to do that? Well, he says believers are to put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Well, why do we need these congregations? Because God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words... We need to be prepared because when Christ returns as judge, he is going to cast Satan and all other rebels out of his kingdom into outer darkness. And the only way for us to survive the judgment of God is faith in Christ. So having the breastplate of faith and the helmet of salvation, that's what distinguishes the believer from the rebel. And the believer who lives in expectation of Christ's return is someone who is also busy preparing himself or herself for Christ's return. And the believer does this by building him or herself up in faith and love and hope. Well, the question then is, what does that look like? What does that kind of life look like? If you knew that Christ was coming back tomorrow, would you live differently than if you were convinced it was going to be another 10 years? <coughs> Would that make a difference for how you live? It's clear from what Paul writes and what from Peter writes that it shouldn't make a difference. Our confession that Christ is coming to judge the living and dead is a confession that should affect us today. Paul writes, if you are children of the light, you have to be ready for Christ's return at any moment. And that should determine how we live and how we act and how we treat our neighbor. You see, if your vision is short-sighted, then all the things of this earth and this life, on this side of Christ's return, those things will become important. 
If you're not very impressed with the thought that Christ might come back tomorrow, then you are more likely to de dedicate most of your time and energy for the pleasures of this life. And that raises a lot of practical questions, doesn't it? I'll just give a couple of examples. If you are a child of the light, is it right for you to get all upset when your favorite team doesn't make the playoffs? When you get up in the morning, are you more concerned with your Facebook or Twitter status than beginning the day with prayer, for example? Do you spend more time worrying about the latest fashions than about spending time in God's Word? And I'm sure you can think of many more questions like that. According to what we read from 2 Peter 3, the earth that now exists is stored up for fire. And when the Lord returns, the earth and the works that are done on it will be dissolved. And so Peter asks his readers, what kind of people, what sort of people ought you to be then in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And if this is true, and I trust that we all accept this as true, then we know what's going to happen to our house, in our car in the garage, in the boat in the driveway, right in our jewelry, or whatever else we have. It's all going to go up in smoke, isn't it? And if that's the reality, then doesn't that put a different perspective on how much time and energy and money you devote to these things? We should honestly ask ourselves, or maybe we just need to admit to ourselves, that most of the time we don't live as if Christ could come back today, this afternoon. Most of the time we live as if Christ's return is something that is kind of hazy, somewhere in the distant future, perhaps. But if Christ is coming back this week, then surely we will pour all of our energy into getting ready for that return. Then our focus would be on faith, hope, and love. And then we would focus on living godly lives and loving our neighbor. In the form for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, we confess that we can look forward to the glorious marriage feast of the Lamb. But we also confess that being prepared for that feast means that we also desire more and more to live for Christ. And be pre being prepared for this feast means we want to lay aside all hatred and enmity and envy so that we would live with our neighbor in love and unity. It means that we put aside our squabbles and that we hate any remaining sin in ourselves. That's what we focus on. It means that we focus on Christ, that we also focus our money and our time and our energy on Christ and on His kingdom, that we prepare ourselves to meet Him. We often speak, use the language of, of being prepared or preparing ourselves to participate in the Lord's Supper, and that's good. That's a good thing to do. But we should always be prepared to participate in the Lord's Supper. And we should always be prepared and be busy preparing 
to meet the Lord Jesus. Imagine if he told you, I'm coming to your house this afternoon. Would you have to ask him, please postpone the visit, because I'm not quite ready? I pray that that would not be true of any of us, because that's not how we're called to live. We're called to live in the light because we are children of the light. That means being prepared to meet the Lord Jesus. And it's understandable, of course, that we easily get caught up in the things of this life. But the confession that Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead is a confession that should put everything earthly into its proper perspective. Yes, there's certainly a place for a nice house, nice car, and clothing, and hockey, and golf. But as the Apostle Peter implies, all these things pale in comparison to the things that are waiting for us on new heavens and the new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Brothers and sisters, may it be our prayer and our determination that this would determine how we live. Every day. Amen.